This is a podcast from ABC Overnights. Here's Michael Pavlich. Dr David Cunnington is a sleep physician. He's the co-director of the Melbourne Sleep Disorder Centre and he's also the co-producer of a podcast called Sleep Talk, a podcast where they discuss all things sleep. G'day, David. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Shouldn't you be in bed now? Well, one of my little secrets is I am a pretty much an early morning type. So we might get into that. We all have our own sleep types and some of it's genetically mediated and I've always been up pretty early. All right. What time, how early are we talking? So this is an earlier start than normal uh, for me, but not too far off. Five's not early. Uh, yeah, look, we do. It's funny, isn't it, how we all have our own sort of getting up time and going to bedtime. It's obviously, obviously, you know, a lot around work and how we fit in our lives around work and fit our sleep in around work. But it seems to be some people... Are is it right? Is some people more suited to night shift or to working nights than other people? Oh, absolutely true. So some people are more early morning types, some are more late night types, some can deal with the changes in sleep timing that's involved with shift work and others find it really tough. And those things are largely genetically mediated or largely biologically mediated. And that's where you find some people might do shift work earlier in life and go, gee, this isn't for me, you know, and I yeah. just don't stick with it whereas others will do shift work and, you know, find they can cope with it pretty well and may stick with shift work throughout their life. I've been doing it for a little while now, the night shift, and one way I've found to cope is actually do split shifts. So I'll do have a sleep when I get home and then have a bit of a sleep before I come in. And I sort of say, well, the Mexicans do it. They do the siesta, don't they, after lunch, and they're all right, so it's not going to be doing me too much harm. But is it, David? Well, probably not, and that's a very sensible way to approach it. So people who work shifts often have limited opportunities for sleep, so may not expect to sleep in one single block across the night. And we talk then of biphasic sleep, so having two goes at sleep across a 24-hour period. And you're right, lots of societies have successfully done that and maintained good health. And for shift workers, it's a great way of trying to minimise the sleep loss that's often associated with shift work. One thing I've noticed too is when I've been in the situation where I'm just so tired and have limited availability for sleeping, but I'll take a power nap. And it might only be half an hour, an hour, but it seems to be very refreshing just for that little little window. You know, it's obviously not ideal, but power naps, are they any good for you? Oh, absolutely. And I'm not sure that it's not ideal. I, I, I think napping's a really good strategy for most of us. There are exceptions when we say napping's not great, and that's if someone's got acute insomnia where napping might take away from their drive to sleep at night. But in almost all other circumstances, napping's great. Most of us are a bit underslept or not quite getting enough sleep because, hey, we're all pretty busy. So napping's a nice way of just paying down a bit of that sleep debt. And if we've had a big week, napping's a great way of just getting back on track, paying back a bit of that sleep debt, burning off a bit of that sleep drive so that we're a bit less sleepy. Let's have a chat to... G'day, Craig. Good morning. How are you today? Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah, I only get about four hours sleep a night and, uh, yeah, just struggle to go back to sleep after that. Hey, what sort of job do you do? Uh, I was a baker for 35 years, yep. uh, but I haven't baked for about 15 now, uh, just doing other work, but I still only get a four-hour block. It's, it's, it's a good four hours, uh, but then struggle to get to sleep. After that, for long periods, I'd just toss and turn for the rest of the night. Are you more. suggesting this is maybe related to the fact that you were getting up all, for all those odd hours for so many years? Yes, I, I think it would be. Because um, normally when I was baking, I would um, wake up after four hours and go to work. I think that body clock has just stayed. Yeah, gee, that's uh, 15 years later. That's, yeah, I've been struggling with it for about 25 years altogether. 
So. All right. Let's uh, see what David's got to say about that. I mean, body clocks, circadian rhythms, that sort of stuff, they're, they're real things, aren't they, David? Absolutely. Uh, it, it's funny, though. So when someone's done shift work over many years, they do, in some respects, get used to that behavioural pattern. Hmm. But it doesn't permanently change our body clock. So, for example, you know, we would all, in, in days when we could travel, and hopefully soon, you know, we'd travel to the other side of the world and our body clock would actually reset pretty quickly within about a week or so. So someone who's done shift work even for many, many years doesn't break their body clock or change where it sits. And so once they stop shift work, their body clock will revert back to a more conventional, I suppose, sort of timing. But what changes is just what they think, believe and how they behave around sleep. So someone who's always had slept with sort of one ear open, waiting for the alarm to go, sort of almost ready to then sort of quietly jump out of bed in the middle of the night and sort of go, they're going to maintain that sort of behaviour pattern and that way of thinking around sleep. So much like uh, Michael was talking about, Craig, you know, that biphasic sleep or that concept of, yeah, I'm only going to sleep for four hours at night, then I'll be up. And so why don't I take some sleep later on when it's going to come a bit more easily rather than trying to force it in that second half of the night when really it's not not happening, there's restlessness and tossing and turning. Maybe a way of trying to, again, mitigate or reduce how much sleep you're losing and make sure that you're not underslept on a long-term basis. What's the most you would sleep, David, in a night, a longer stretch? Well, we sleep in cycles. And so most of us have these cycles that last anywhere between one to two hours. And it's actually really common, in fact, normal to wake at the end of a cycle of sleep. Now, we usually don't wake at the end of the first sleep cycle. So it'd be uncommon for people to wake one to two hours after going to sleep, but really, really common for people to wake three to four hours after going to sleep and actually feel quite awake and feel like they could start their day. And then feeling like the subsequent cycles after that are much lighter and closer to the surface. So in fact, not dissimilar to what Craig describes. Yeah. And historically, people just had a few different words for that. Witching hour was one of the terms oh, historically yeah. that people have used for that long period of time when people wake up after three to four hours of sleep and then doze until the sun comes up. Um, going back about five or six hundred years, people talked about the first sleep. That's the sort of three or four hours that's where that saying comes, you know, three oh, yeah. hours of sleep before midnight's worth more sleep after midnight. Then they'd be awake for a while and then they'd doze until the sun came up and that was called the second sleep. So this waking during the night or waking after a couple of cycles of sleep is pretty normal. So we shouldn't think of sleep as, you know, we've got to get a certain amount of time as a continuous stretch. You know, often, when we, again, when we're busy and a bit sleep-deprived, we can sleep like that, and we can all remember as teenagers when we could sleep like that. But outside of teenagers, really, nobody sleeps in that continuous cycle. Craig, does that make you feel a bit better? Yeah, it does, actually, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, well, out of interest, what is the longest stint you'd get sleeping nowadays? Uh, I think the most I've got was about six hours, and that's on a, um, like a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning when I'm not working. Yeah. Uh, I think the mind relaxes a little bit knowing that the alarm doesn't have to go off. Yeah, I'm with you. Look, so look, a lot of the stuff David was saying probably resonate with you a little bit there, David. Absolutely. Uh, Good luck with yep. it, okay? No worries. Okay, yep. Thanks, Tati. You mentioned there before, David, about our the age factor and how when we're teenagers, you know, seem to be able to sleep in forever. Is it something that as we get older, do we need less sleep? Sleep changes as we get older. So yes, in general, people will sleep for shorter periods and it'll be less continuous, as we get older, it'll also get lighter, we'll have more awakenings. And so sleep's a funny thing. You know, I see people who come to see me in my role as a 
sort of medical practitioner, and they'll be in their 60s or 70s, and they'll be yearning for the sleep they had as a teenager. Well, why just, why can't I sleep like that? How on earth can people think about sleep in that way? Because really, sleep's a biological process. Hmm. And I often say to them, well, can you run as fast as when you're a teenager? What about your joints? How are they? Are they like they were when you're a teenager? Oh, no, not not the same. Sure. Well, then sleep's not going to be the same. It's going to change as life goes by, and it's not going to be as robust, unfortunately, as life goes by. So we'll be more readily disturbed, may find it a bit harder to get back to sleep. It doesn't mean it's worse quality. It just means it changes. What about getting teenagers out of bed? Got any, any cures for that? <laughs> it's a challenge for all of us. Short sheeting, I think. So. You know, teenagers really get it tough with sleep. You know, at the same time as they're being told you've got to sleep more, they're also being given many more things to do. So they've got lots of school study responsibilities. They're trying to establish themselves socially. And biologically, it's a time when their bodies actually need more sleep compared to earlier in teenage years. So sort of early high school years, sleep's a little shorter. And then later high school years, not only do those teenagers need a bit more sleep, their body clock tends to run a little later as well. Okay. So they may find it hard to settle at the start of the night and definitely harder to get out of bed in the morning. Huh. Well, uh, that makes a lot of sense for what I've uh, observed. Another thing about that is because we hear a lot about teenagers on their phones, they're sort of on their phones right up until the time they go to bed. That sort of activity, uh, really, uh, it's not conducive to relaxation and getting off to sleep, is it? So I think it's uh, recommended that, that teenagers put their phones down a couple of hours before they go to bed. So absolutely, in a perfect world, if we were doing everything just to try and make sleep perfect, we'd remove the the blue light device that is the phone that can impact on melatonin levels and impact on sleep and also the attention that the phone really requires. It's that what's the next thing, what's the next Mm. thing keeps the brain quite alert. But the trouble is, you know, it's like cutting cutting their arm off for people that have grown up in that digital age and if you don't have the phone and just tell someone, right, go into that dark room and just lay there and go to sleep, pretty quickly they'll start ruminating about things and overthinking things mm. and getting a little bit distressed and tossing and turning. So all of us need some sort of distractor to stop us getting into that sort of overthinking things yep, yep. type of pattern. And so it's a matter of, well, if you take the phone away, what are you going to replace that with? You know, for me, you know, I'm in my 50s, I'm okay with quietly reading a book. But someone who's grown up in that digital age, a book, what's that? You know, what's what's a long form of sort of writing? You know, it's something that's quite foreign to them and doesn't come naturally. So, yes, ideally the phone um, down before bed, but we've got to think about, well, just that empty space and telling somebody you must go to sleep, guaranteed way to make them anxious <laughs> about not sleeping. So we've got to balance that. I imagine uh, as part of your podcast and part of your th- the, uh, being a physician and the therapy you advise, you would be talking, you know, that busy mind thing, that racing mind is something that keeps a lot of people awake at night. I imagine you would look at a number of relaxation techniques to sort of still the mind a little bit, to bring a little bit of calm, to help sleep. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really important skill for sleeping well. If you think of it, think of it when we awake during the night or while we're sleeping, if we're not comfortable with just resting quietly and calmly, then we're not going to be able to get back to sleep. If the minute we wake up, it's like, right, now what have I got to do? And I've got all these things I need to do tomorrow. And how come I'm not back asleep yet? And we can't settle that cycle. Yeah, we're not going to be able to sleep that great. So an important skill is that ability to be comfortable with empty space. 
again, you know, it's not uncommon for people to come and see me in my office and they'll be, you know, almost the way they move. They're twitchy, jumpy, can't sit still, fiddling, legs sort of jumping up and down. And I go, you know, could you sit still for five minutes? Oh, no, I've got things to do. No surprise they're not sleeping well. So Mm. cultivating that ability of, you know, being okay with I'm just going to chill for a bit and just going to have some quiet time is an important skill to develop. And it's less about that sort of just winding down immediately before you go to bed, which washes away all the <laughs> the sins of how we've sort of run on nervous energy all throughout the day, yeah. much more about being comfortable with being able to take these little breaks and pauses during the day and being okay with just taking our foot off the accelerator periodically. Uh, Warren's first up on the phone. G'day, Warren. G'day, Pav. Pav uh, good morning, David. Um, Pav, I've been talking to you for... Oh, probably 15, 16, maybe 20 years or something like that. And yeah. you know what I do for work, don't you? I drive B-doubles up and down the Pacific Highway. Oh, he's a truck driver. Now, sleep for me is absolutely essential. If I don't have proper sleep, it's not only life-threatening to myself, I could cause a huge disaster. I got onto something around about 12 months ago, which someone put me onto it, and I was very sceptical at first. But I started taking bee pollen capsules. Now, the bee, bee pollen not only helps with the fatigue... When I do go to sleep at around 7 o'clock in the morning, I just drop straight off to sleep. It's all natural vitamins. There's no chemicals or anything like that. It's just natural bee pollen. I'm amazed. Tuesday morning was my worst morning of the week because I slept Saturday night, Sunday night. I go to work on Monday night, and then I come in on, on Tuesday morning, and I was fatigued. I was tired. I wasn't falling yeah, asleep no, behind the wheel. This. So you're saying that, yeah. bee, honey, bee pollen's working for you? I mean, there's a lot of these sort of natural therapies, I would have thought, David, that, that are quite effective. I mean, I don't know anything about that honey or bee pollen that we've heard about there. You may know more about that. But there's things like there are sort of certain teas that we can drink that might relax us a little bit. Um, have you heard anything about what Warren's talking about there? Yeah, that's a new one for me, Warren. So thanks for um, highlighting that, and I'm really glad it's working for you that lots of people have got a story exactly like Warren. It's like, I've found this thing that just seems to help me. It's one of the mysterious things about sleep is that if we do research on some of these strategies, things like bee pollen, for example, often we'll find, you know, there's not much in it if we sort of look at a population and how people respond, but individuals may find it works really well for them. So I'm glad it's working well for you, Warren. Good on you, Was. I've got here Ambie Somlant, uh, done night and day shifts. I can go from a comfortable 6am start to a 6am crash in three days. Hmm, that sounds like pretty tough going. I've got also this one that says, can you get, guess your guest to comment on postprandial fatigue and how, uh, how it is age-related? Yeah, it's the after-lunch nap. That's what that is. <laughs> or that sense of after we've eaten oh, yep. that we have this sense of sleepiness. And it's not something that necessarily gets worse with age, but just I was talking about sleep getting less robust as we get older. Yep. Wake also gets less robust. So that ability when you know people are young to think about it as, right, when I'm awake, I'm awake. I'm not feeling sleepy, don't need a nap. And when I'm asleep, I'm asleep. And as we get into our 20s and then as life goes by, that ability to quarantine sleep into one part of the day and wake into another part of the day and not mix them gets less and less. So as the as years go by, we get that that all of us get a sense of feeling a bit more sleepy once we've had a meal, particularly a large meal that maybe um, if it's heavy in carbohydrates, and it just weighs more heavily on us as life goes by because we have more of a preference for having a nap 
during the day as we get older because we can't stave off that sleepiness or carry that sleepiness right across the day as we can when we're younger. And so there's just that sense of right after lunch or that sense of needing a nap. That's really exaggerated after lunch, particularly as we get older. There you go. Interesting stuff. Uh, I've got this one. Uh, I had trouble sleeping for years, but when I go camping at the beach, I sleep like, sleep like a baby. I've been told the sound of the ocean is like the sounds heard in the womb. Uh, you know, the sound of the ocean, sound of rain falling on the roof, uh, you know, sound of wind. Um, there's all those sort of CDs available with no- nature sounds that are trying to try to relax you and put you into a sleeping mood. Um, it's, I've, anecdotally, I've heard that they work. But, um, is it, I mean, Tony's sort of saying there, is that something connecting us to the womb, maybe taking us back to some almost before we were born? I'm less about that personally in terms of having that sort of connection. I think of it in a couple of different ways. So absolutely, the, the concept of white noise or brown noise, whatever sort of frequency you think of, or a distraction to just block out other ambient noises and block out some of our internal distractions works really well for some people. The other concept, though, is, you know, what is it the noise or is it the going camping? Because for a lot of people, when we're in our normal roles, if we're awake at night, it's like, right, I've got to go and do this thing. I've got this thing I need to sort out. What about that? Whereas if we pack up the car, pack up the tent, we're giving ourselves a signal, I'm I'm off duty. I've clocked off. Yep. Then we go and drive somewhere else and put the tent on the beach. We're like, I don't have to deal with any of that other stuff that's associated with my normal busy life. So is it that? It's often just that disconnection. I've given myself permission to step out of my usual role, and that's often when people will find they sleep pretty well because there's not the, I've got to do this, got to do that, got to be up, got to get the kids organised. There's not all that sort of ticking along in the background. Also, I've heard the fresh air. Good dose of fresh air will make you a little bit more tired than the city air. I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, again, we've, we've, we are very much biological beings and our body cues into the natural environment. So it's really good data that when we spend more time outside and get more exposure to daylight, we feel more alert during the day. And it also cues in our body clocks and helps with sleep at night. It's a really nice experiment done some years ago in the US uh, where a researcher took um, adolescents living in the city who were having trouble with sleep generally, as we talked about, trouble settling, trouble getting up in the morning, and took them into the woods camping for a week and no electronics and just camping in the woods. And pretty quickly, all of them synced their body clock to the day-night cycle, slept longer, were up early when the sun came up. And it only took a week of just taking those adolescents out of the city, off their devices, away from electricity and artificial light to pretty quickly have their body clocks automatically sync to that natural environment. And as older adults, we have those same signals and we'll respond to that stimulus in the same way. Peter, good morning. Oh, g'day. I, I think sleep is very important. And I think when it comes to sleep, each to their own. And also, you know, people shouldn't be uh, judged on their sleeping patterns either. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point that he's making there. I mean, is that something we find? Do we have uh, sleep snobs, David? The, the world is very biased against late night types. This is where I benefit. As an early morning type, I'm seeing as industrious and hardworking. I'm, you know, at the office early, ready to go. Whereas someone who's more a late night type, who's a bit slower in the morning, yeah, they're lazy, slovenly. Come on, just <laughs> just get your act together. In fact, that's just totally biologically mediated. So absolutely, there are sleep snobs. 
The other snobbery that comes up with sleep is that bravado about, well, I only need four hours, you know, look at me, I've got these special powers, I don't need to sleep like you mere humans. So we do have that sort of snobbery around sleep. I want to read you a text at this point, (laughs) talking about superpowers. This comes from uh, Chris uh, from Karina in Queensland. He says, I was just wondering if you can sleep too much. I regularly sleep nine plus up to 11 hours. I'm a shift worker and never have trouble sleeping. My husband jokingly refers to my ability to sleep anytime as my superpower. Can, can, that's a great question, a great text. Can we sleep too much? You can. There are certainly people who have sleep a sleep disorder that's characterised by sleeping too much, but usually those people will not only sleep long, but despite sleeping long, will still be sleepy yeah. and still feel constantly sleepy through the day whereas others will sleep a bit longer than the average, say nine or ten hours, for example, but when they're up, feel pretty normal and feel like they're pretty good. I suspect, though, someone who's a shift worker may not be sleeping nine hours every single night, and it may be that when there's that longer opportunity, a good sleeper who works shift work will find themselves able to sleep longer, and that's often making up for a little bit shorter sleeps on other nights. A lot of people actually saying they they do the split shift thing. I'm a night shift worker. This is from Stumpy. I work, uh, I sleep four to six hours, then wake up and then go back for about two hours. Um, and there's another one here saying I, I split. Uh, the problem with split shifts is that uh, we had people starting work at eight a.m. until say twelve to one p.m. and then required to start back at five p.m. too late. Uh, this is one thing we I, we work the night shift here, but it's a regular thing, so we're doing the same hours. Some of the people who work here, Master Control, for example, they are on rotating shifts, so they might be working night shift this week, but then they'll be doing day shift the week after, and then the morning shift after that. They're moving shifts around. The t- starting time of a shift is that conducive to you know not. Being, not getting good night's sleep. You know, and if you think of it at a rational level, it's like trying to work and live in Melbourne for two days of the week and then live in London for two days of the week and then come back to Melbourne for your days off and then go back to London for two days and then come back to Melbourne. If, if you said to someone, I'm going to travel like that, how do you think I'll feel? You'd go, you're going to feel terrible. You're going to feel awful all the time. So why on earth would we get people to work those type of shifts? Because we would expect they'll feel bad and it'll be bad for their health. But nonetheless, there are still a number of industries and industries you'd think would know better, including in healthcare, yeah. where they have exactly those shifts, two yeah. days, two 12-hour days, two 12-hour nights um, within the same week. I've got a, a text from Deb on the Gold Coast who says that nursing split shifts and insomnia has taken its toll. Now I just sleep when I'm tired. I'm 62. Some nights I'm up all night uh, and sleep all day between meal and bathroom needs. You know, one of the industries you're talking about there is nursing. They seem to uh, work some pretty hard and long shifts. Yeah, they do. And some really nice work, uh, research being done in Melbourne, um, out of Monash University, looking at sleep in nurses and showing particularly between the late shifts and the early shifts is when nurses have problems and average only around five hours of sleep between those shifts, and they're the common shifts that nurses work, either an afternoon shift or a morning shift, where they'll finish their shift at about 10pm, start their next shift at 7am, and in between you've got to commute home, have something to eat, get ready, go to bed, and then commute back to work the next morning. So that really short turnaround, which is very common for nurses, really results in them being underslept when they're working those um, split shifts or short changeovers. That's wrong. Whoever's, if anybody's listening to this who puts together nurses' rosters, we reckon you should look after them better, don't we, David? Well, that's part of that same research. So part of the initial part of the research was define the problem 
and now that's moving on to fix the problem, so better design the rosters. So that that's changing. Especially with the amount of pressure that the, the health professionals and nurses are under these days. John, good day. Oh, yeah. Hello. Good morning, David. Um, I've got two questions relating to the sleeping patterns for people who, say, have grown up in the tropics, as I have, and also for people of different racial ethnic backgrounds on a Chinese background. You're saying the differences... In sleeping patterns. Is there any difference in sleeping patterns of people who've grown up in the tropics? As one question, and also of people who have a different ethnic background. Oh, okay, no worries. That's yeah. a good question, there, David. Think of it as if you if you grow up in a particular area, you, you what you believe about sleep and how you behave about sleep is then informed by that. So, someone who's grown up in the tropics, a typical sleeping pattern in the tropics will be sun's up early and it's hot in the middle of the day, and the only good time to get out and about is either early in the day or sort of at sundown. And so people who live in the tropics will typically be up early, getting a lot of stuff done, may have um, a midday nap, and then going to bed often a bit earlier than people who live further away from the equator. So then you take someone who's grown up with that belief around sleep and you bring them to Melbourne, where we're further away from the equator, it's all a bit weird because it's not light and hot early and we may not get dark until much later. And so it not going to fit with how they are used to thinking and behaving around sleep. It's interesting, I worked in the US for a while and we had a number of um, university students we used to manage who were Eskimos who'd come from uh, very close to the North Pole and their patterns of sleep actually varied quite a lot across seasons. So they, partly because of their behaviour but partly a very long-standing sort of biological trait was when there's more light in summer, they would sleep a bit shorter, and when it was darker, they'd sleep a bit longer. The problem was they came to Boston to come to university and got put in dorm rooms that were dark and were just then sleeping long, long, long periods because it was like the sort of North Pole winter was what they were equating yeah, that to. But that, makes, that sort of makes sense, doesn't it, really? So I was just wondering all about those people living in northern parts of England and parts of Scandinavia where they have those long, long periods of dusk whether they it affects their sleep, but I suppose you get used to it, don't you? I mean, I go to sleep in the morning when it's getting light. It doesn't seem to you know, be a deterrent. It was at the start, but you get used to it. In some respects, we all we all vary. There's some other work again from Monash University in a different group showing that there's a fifty-fold variation in our sensitivity to light. So, someone who's naturally a bit less sensitive to light tends to be able to manage shift work better throughout life because they can sleep when it's light, their body's less of that, I I can only sleep when it's dark. But imagine if you're someone who's highly sensitive to light and you're living in northern Scandinavia and it's light right through the night, they can get really, really significant problems with insomnia, but it'll only be a small percentage of the population who are at that extreme of light sensitivity. And the rest of the population who aren't at that extreme will go, come on, what's wrong with you? Get your act together. You know, it's not a, not such a big deal. So there is a lot that's biologically mediated about our ability to sleep and manage in adverse circumstances while while we're sleeping. Yeah, look, we get a you know night shift workers. We cop a lot of the old um, vampire jokes. You know, oh, I haven't seen you up during the light. You sure you're okay during the daylight hours? <laughs> All this sort of stuff. The discriminations out there, David. G'day, Mike. Uh, yeah, I'm on the west coast. So we talk about light from the east to the west. 
So here we are in Australia right now, thrilling. Oh, what is it now? Is it two hours, three hours? Part of what you you may be getting at is, you know, is it different in different parts of the country? So there's absolutely issues with people living on the western side of time zones having it worse with things like daylight savings and things like trying to get up early in the morning. Because if you think of what we do with things like daylight savings and allocating time zones to different parts of the country, is we're we're sort of allocating this thing we, we would talk about in the sleep field as social time. But that's totally different to sun time. So the sun will be doing its own thing, sunrise, sunset, and then we have artificially put on top of this, okay, well, we're going to call this time 7 a.m. in the morning and a certain number of kilometres to the west, we're going to call it um, 6 a.m., for example. But that's a social time we've superimposed on sun time, and those two things don't always sync. And if you're at the westernmost part of a time zone, so people in Perth are at the westernmost part of the western time zone, it's actually much harder to adapt to a change like daylight saving, which is one of the reasons mm. Western Australia doesn't do daylight saving. Oh. It has that difference to the east coast. There you go. That's very interesting. And then the other side of that is a country like China, which must cover the six or seven different time zones. They are actually all on the same time zone, I believe. So if you're in the western part of China, it's the same time as it is in the eastern part of China. Exactly. And there's really good research coming out about the significant health impacts that has because you're right, they're up to six or seven hours difference to Beijing time because they're so far to the west of Beijing in terms of their sun time, but the social time is exactly the same. Um, the other thing I just wanted to talk to you a little about is um, is snoring, just quickly. Uh, it's something that affects a lot of people's ability to get a good night's sleep. There are all sorts of treatments available, but is this something that, is, you know, for people who are having... You know, a lot of trouble and sort of uh, tossing and turning. Maybe their partner's having trouble too. Do you get a lot of uh, people inquiring about ways to manage their snoring? Yeah, it's a really common reason for people to end up in my office as a medical practitioner is trying to work on strategies to reduce snoring. So snoring can be um, something that doesn't cause health problems, but it can also be a marker for a more significant problem called sleep apnea or obstructive sleep yeah. apnea. And so snoring is actually really common. About a quarter of people over the age of 50 snore sufficiently to disturb a partner. And sleep apnea is a bit less common. It's about one in 20 people over the age of 50 will get sleep apnea. You do hear, and, though, people who get the machines, the apnea machines and stuff, they, they often claim that's the first decent night's sleep they've had for a long time. Exactly. And David, if people have got sleep apnea, something like that, and treating it can make a really big difference to their health and how they're feeling. Yeah, sleep's very important. It's been fascinating talking to you this morning, David. Appreciate your time very much. Thanks a lot. Cheers, thanks. Dr David Cunnington there, who's a sleep physician. He's the co-director of the Melbourne Sleep Disorders Centre, and he also produces a podcast called Sleep Talk.